90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Just frantically getting ready for that upcoming GSA meeting. I'm not worried at all, at all. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, like these cycles that we put ourselves through, you know? Yes, you know, there's... There's the summer season, and there's school, midterms, finals, conference season. Yeah, yeah, and it it's like doesn't... academic deer season for abstracts. <laughs> it really, it really is. Oh man, the stress it just never goes away. I was talking about that. Like every year, it gets that same like, oh god, is it going to be ready? So, <laughs> I should probably start on my talk. I guess. Yeah, I got two weeks. What am I saying? <laughs> you have a plane ride exactly this is why you never want posters like you learn this as your career goes on right as a student you always want a poster because you're too scared to stand up in front of people and talk but then as a further along professional in academia you're like i need that talk so i can be doing it the night before (laughs) (laughs) i mean i like getting things done pretty well in advance but you know in the phd movie there was that scene where (laughs) the professor said that he likes to have his students give him new data Right before his talk, so he can flash it up and say, this is something my student just handed me. Oh, it's so true. (laughs) I don't know how many talks have gone down like that between me and my advisor, but quite a few. Right. (laughs) Quite a few. We won't be having any new data, though, since, as you know, the magnetometer is still broken. (laughs) It's true. Well, it's it's better, though. It is better. It's healing, I guess. (laughs) Yes, so we managed to get some of the issues fixed and you're now waiting on parts for the rest of it right um so as we're obviously alluding to sean was up visiting and doing a lot of work on our magnetometer this last weekend it was uh it was great being out there and getting to work on the machine and that's something that i really enjoy doing is looking at broken lab equipment and helping make it better (laughs) and uh i actually spent this afternoon unpacking a piece of equipment to be able to do that better yeah i know you're pretty excited about this i think most of our uh, most of our real followers probably have already seen pictures of it on the slack channel <laughs> yeah so <laughs> i was able to get a computer controlled milling machine and i mean okay that sounds cool but this isn't a joke this is not a tabletop cnc guy this is a it came with its own table right <laughs> It did. It came on two pallets, 1,100 pounds. Uh, That's impressive. 53-foot semi in my neighborhood. That was fun. (laughs) Hope the HOA loved that one. (laughs) (laughs) It was surprisingly quick to unload, and I'm still in the process of depalletizing and then uh, over the next few days disassembling, moving into my workshop, and reassembling. So how many towels did it take for you to wipe all the drool off the box after you got it in (laughs) Uh, a few. <laughs> and even more to wipe off all of that oily cosmoline goo that's on everything. So was the truck driver interested in what it was? Could he tell what it was? Did he ask you? Oh, he knew what it was. Oh, okay. uh, and he complimented. He said, oh, you know, this is this is a nice one. This is in good crates and everything. And uh, he said, some of those other brands, they send them in like balsa wood crates and they just get destroyed. And- <laughs> Awesome. A man after our own hearts, a connoisseur of packing materials. (laughs) That's awesome. It's true. And I mean, he was great. I was worried about being able to get it 
into my garage for safe and secure storage yes. while I was doing this because technically they just have to drop it off at the curb. Yeah, that's terrifying. Um, but he was great about helping me get it in. And yeah, so I spent about an hour knocking the pallets all apart and I have lots of plywood to build shelves for my tools now. <laughs> I was going to say, there's a lot of Pinterest boards out there for those packing crates. So, <laughs> Yep. <laughs> Don't throw them away. Oh, no. You know me. I would not throw good plywood away. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> but oh. so it's been crazy. As you know, last week we re-ran a show because Shannon was running around like crazy. Mm -hmm. uh, it actually was my birthday, my anniversary, uh, and the Open Hardware Summit <laughs> at all least, in a row. At least that made third place in that list. Yeah. <laughs> um. It was a really busy week, but I wanted to talk about some of that. Maybe not so much the, the birthday and the anniversary, but the Open <laughs> Hardware Summit. Yeah. Um, I, well, I don't know anything about it. So obviously it's about open hardware, but <laughs> and this one was close to home though, right? Yeah. So I've actually been really fortunate. Two years ago, I went and we talked about it on here mm -hmm. uh, when it was in Pennsylvania. And so that was a close drive. This time it was in Denver. So, do you think that you need to reassess your your buying habits that they're following you around? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I'm just gonna throw that out there. <laughs> so it was actually it was it was a really great thing. Uh, our friends over at Embedded.fm sponsored the event, uh, one of many sponsors. Awesome. And I actually was able to get down there. I didn't want to drive downtown Denver. Mm -hmm. because downtown Denver, so I actually experimented with public transit and was able to go all the way from Longmont to Denver. Hey, those light rail rides are pretty good. Well, once, this, you, once you get to the light rail. <laughs> this was all buses. Oh, all the way. Mm. All the way. Good for you. Cool. Yeah, it was interesting and got to do uh, some walking around downtown, chatting with people, but I thought it would be fun to talk a little bit about open hardware Open Source Hardware Association and some of the cool talks that I saw there. Okay. And something that uh, if you have a question about it, my guess is a lot of our listeners do too. Uh, yes, that is probably true. Um, so start us off and I will start pondering. All right. Well, so open hardware, you know, we're, we're all big fans of open software and open data. Yes. There was that great EOS article recently by Peter Brewer mm -hmm. about your data needs to be open for it to be published, period. Yes, absolutely. I totally agree with this. And the people at the Open Hardware Summit, they come from many walks of life. There are some scientists. And the scientists that are there would argue that uh, any of custom fixtures, lab equipment, measurement techniques, anything like that, uh, should also be open. Okay. All right. And there are a wide variety of opinions about what should and shouldn't be open, right. especially if it's a commercial product. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I would imagine. You know, there was a whole talk on this whole right to repair debate, oh. uh, which I'm not sure how familiar you are with the right to repair debate. I'm not, but it sounds like it's probably, you know, has something to do with me since I've got a lot of lab equipment that doesn't work, right? Right, and I haven't heard it reference so much to lab equipment i oh, think okay. because lab equipment is a relatively low volume product <laughs> yes i think there's like 20 of these 
Magnetometers. Yeah, that's what we do. But let's say you buy a tractor from John Deere. This is one of the most famous examples right now. Okay. Uh, Technically, according to John Deere's end user license agreement on their tractor, because it has a computer and runs software, uh, you are leasing the software and parts of the hardware. Mm You're not really owning it. Yep. So if you need to change a part, uh, that's great. In the old days, you could unbolt it and bolt a new one on, and you're good to go. Now you unbolt it, bolt a new one on, and some connectors plug in, and either it verifies that it's genuine John Deere stuff and won't start if it's not, or it has to have a John Deere service tech come out and punch a code in. Right, exactly. So my husband's a mechanic, and this is uh, very prevalent in his line of work now, right? Because there used to be, everyone used to be able to work on their cars and no one does anymore. And I think one of the reasons is because of this software business, just like, just like you said, the car won't go if it doesn't have the right thing plugged into it. And you have to have this ridiculously expensive computer to talk to the actual part. Right. So it's like, you know, the Juicero of tractors. Yes. exactly. Uh, And it's, it's interesting because there are, okay, you, we want you to have genuine parts and safe parts and things that are meant to work together. But there's also the fact that you don't really own it. If you can't take it apart and work on it, you don't really own the hardware. Mm-hmm. That's weird. Yeah. So there is lots of discussion about that. Lots of discussion about how a company can produce an open hardware product and still make money. Mm-hmm. Whether right. that is should be the standard and in fact the open source hardware association or ashwa has come up with an open hardware certification program oh okay cool right so you can say i am building this hardware product and it will conform to these yeah everything has to be open there's very detailed guidelines about what types of files have to be available and where and all this And if you sign up for it, they give you a serial number, sort of uh, an ID number and a logo that you can put on your product. And if you or anybody else violates that, there can be legal action after a couple of warnings. Wow. Okay. Uh, And notice I said if you or anybody else. Mm -hmm. So if you make changes to the product and you decide that it's some super secret sauce, uh, you either have to withdraw from the certification program if you don't want to release that, or there will be a couple warnings, and then you start getting fined for violating your own terms of open hardware. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah, and that is controversial, mm-hmm. obviously. Uh, but I think it's a really neat idea. I'm not sure if we have it quite tuned in to where it needs to be yet. Mm-hmm. But I like the idea, and I would love it if more lab equipment was open because there's always somebody who wants to do something a little different than the standard. Right, exactly. Because you're pushing the bounds of science. You're trying new things. And the fact that so much of this is closed, you either have to beg for and sign NDAs to get what you need, Mm -hmm. or they just flat out won't tell you, and you have to reverse engineer it. Right, exactly, which can cost you a lot of money. It can. (laughs) So, I mean, I guess my big question, and maybe you're going to answer this after we go over some other things, is, yeah, so how do you make money if this is the way we're going, you know? Well, so one thing is you innovate quickly 
and you don't spend lots of money on patents and other legal fees. Okay. All right. So that's one way. And okay, somebody copies you. Well, depending on what kind of license you have, they may have to open their changes up as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, generally, the license I use don't require that. Okay. Uh, because I've, that does keep some companies from using your technology. Uh, so I generally use a license that says you can use this for whatever you want. You can make money off of it if you want. I don't care. But if there's a problem and something goes wrong, don't come looking for me. <laughs> you also don't care. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. Uh, so an MIT type license. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but really, the just the advantage of you can go so much faster and often will get community contributions back. Right. Versus you know, uh, some large instrument company. I Just to pick on a random one, Agilent, who makes a lot of laboratory, like, gas analyzers and things. Mm-hmm. Okay. I yeah. mean, so there's always going to be someone who's going to pay for it, though, because they don't want to deal with it, too, like me, right? <laughs> right. And being an open product doesn't mean that it's, you know, I say, well, everything's on GitHub. Go knock yourself out. Right. It can still be something that is commercially available. You can go buy it. It's a finished product, but all of the design files are available to you. Gotcha. Yeah. And, you know, this has been around for a while without a name. There are a lot of scientific instruments, especially older ones. Your magnetometer is one of them. Mm -hmm. That the manual had pages and pages and pages of schematics. Mm -hmm. So technically we could have sat down and built another one. Uh, pretty close. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Technically, I said. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. That's cool. So that's sort of the, the premise of everything going on here. But I wanted to go through a couple of interesting talks. And the first one, I think, is one you will be excited about. Okay. <laughs> uh, so Pamela Liu, who's the founder of a company called Dottie. Okay. And I believe the website is DottieCanWeave.com. <laughs> All right. Uh, the product actually just launched this past Monday. This is an open source product, but you can, of course, buy it. So you can just buy it and use it. Uh, that is a small jacquard loom. Okay. What is, what is small? Uh, I think you can, it's modular, so you can vary it. I think it was in blocks of four. But okay. the one she was showing, I believe, was a 30, 30 or 40 element loom okay and so the jacquard loom was one of the first computers in a sense it had mechanical punch cards that you could put a pattern for your fabric in and it would weave it mm-hmm. and so this it is programmable there's a web interface you go and you click little boxes and make the pattern that you want and then you slide the shuttle through you pull the little bar back to compact the fabric and then using motorized slide potentiometers, like those things oh. on sound mixer boards. <gasps> okay. It then moves all of the strands, which I want to say were called WEPs. And then you pass the shuttle through again. And in the end, you have a patterned textile that you made. This is so awesome. <laughs> you are correct. <laughs> this is super cool. Um, and you said it just launched? Yeah, it just launched on Monday. Oh, that's so cool. Were people excited about this? 
Yes, it was it was one of the first talks, and of course she was uh, wearing some things that she had made with it. Ah, that's awesome. <laughs> was that recognizable? It was like, ooh. No, no, oh. not at all. Oh, sweet. That yeah. is super cool. Yes, you're correct. I'm very excited about this. I will try to not get on the website and ignore the rest of you talking for this hour. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> and... Then I thought it was uh, interesting, one of the next talks was using open source software to build robotic hardware. Oh, and okay. This was, it, it felt like watching somebody else go through the same exact journey that I've gone on over the past four years mm-hmm. <laughs> of, I used to use Altium and SolidWorks, which are, Altium's a circuit board designer, SolidWorks is uh, a solid modeling CAD program. Okay. I could get licenses to those through my university. Okay. They're fantastic. They are they have been the industry standard for a long time. Okay. They are Windows only, which is a bummer. <laughs> They're licensed per seat for not small amounts of money, like tens of thousands of dollars. I would imagine. Uh and that's not sustainable for me as a small business owner now. Uh yeah. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Right. So they went down the same rabbit hole of, well, we're building open robots. We should be using open tools so that other people can change the design and modify it. Because if you have this cool open robot design, but you need SolidWorks to open the file and modify it to 3D print another part, no high school is going to be able to do that. Right. Mm-hmm. So they moved to KiCad for their electronic design, which is what I use. Uh, and they tried FreeCAD to replace SolidWorks, but uh, it was eerie that they had the exact same complaint list that I did. <laughs> uh, so then they tried OnShape, and they have recently gone to a subscription model, and they're sort oh. of on a soul search. Uh, so it's the exact same path. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. Uh, but I did, <laughs> I did really like something that he said, and it inspired me that I need to go open some pull requests here. <laughs> he said, when you're using the software, no fix is too small. Always contribute back what you've done, even if it seems meaningless. That's awesome. And so for KiCad, for example, I had the issue earlier this year of I was working on a round circuit board and tools for routing and doing copper layers and pores on round boards are not great. And so I had written some custom Python to make that easy for me. Oh, nice. Okay. And it's like, well, I should go and contribute that back into KiCad because it is fundamentally Python itself. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that uh, inspired me to go do that. And also he talked about at the very end, just briefly mentioned something called OpenCam, which I have not had a chance to dive into yet. Uh, but it's a high-end open vision for drones project. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. This is uh, this is starting to get, like, overwhelming now. Again, like, I start to get overwhelmed when I look at my bookshelf and think of all the knowledge in there that I, <laughs> you know, I'm not taking in. And it's like, wow, now it's not even, you have to go buy this million-dollar piece of software. But now there's all this open source stuff that seems to be, working pretty well now just because of that community engagement that you're talking about. Well, so 
you gave me the perfect lead-in. You're welcome. To the next talk <laughs> that I wanted to talk about. Uh, <laughs> this is this is why we do a podcast together. <laughs> right. So Laura James talked about hardware for disaster relief. Oh, and interesting. She's part of an NGO that is called Field Ready, and they are working to do on-site manufacturing of needed products during disasters. Wow. Okay. Such as? Uh, so one of the examples was making search and rescue airbags that can lift five-ton beams off people locally. Right there. Okay. So you find materials. There's a list of, you know, we can use these things and we know how to work with them. And you've got a Humvee that's got 3D printers and sewing machines and everything else in it. And you scavenge material and make it right there instead of waiting on shipments to get there. That's awesome. Uh, another one was 3D printing a bunch of water couplings for broken water infrastructure to get potable water flowing again quickly. Mm -hmm. this, uh, is which the, was, this is amazing that people are yeah. thinking of this. This is great. Uh, one of them was there was some medical equipment that had been donated uh, from hospitals that have outgrown it or got newer stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's older, so they couldn't get all the parts they needed for it. Like they had these infant cribs uh, for premature babies that needed one little piece to make the guardrail secure. Uh, and they couldn't get it anywhere. And they were able to design and 3D print it on site and start oh, using these. That's awesome. That is uh, awesome. The other thing that she brought up, which I never would have thought of, was that when you ship supplies in, you can actually damage the local economy. Oh, yeah. I guess I wouldn't have thought of that either because you're just thinking of, you know, getting supplies. Like, that's it. Right. And so what would happen is you would flood an area with, let's say, grain, and then the grain prices go so low that all the local grain farmers go out of business. Mm -hmm. And then when the free grain runs out, <laughs> yeah, you're in a predicament. Right. Exactly. Uh, let's see. A couple other examples uh a fetoscope uh they had a 3d printed version of those that worked very well wow. uh other birthing aids umbilical cord clamps etc <sighs> um and one of the things that she really emphasized in all this was doing risk assessments so like for a medical supply well we're never going to get it as good as something in a sterile bag that has been autoclaved but it's also better than using shoestring to tie things off, which is what has been done in some cases. Right, exactly. So by coming up with procedures like, well, we're going to use brand new filament out of a vacuum bag. We're going to use gloves when we hand it. We're going to immediately put it in a sterile bag so no atmospheric dust settles on it. Mm -hmm. Risk assessment shows that that's, that's good enough most of the time. Wow. Wow. So the question really was, well, if something breaks, or fails or is made unsafely who's liable and there's no yeah. clear precedent for that right uh so they're trying to do the best they can right now with risk assessments of everything mm -hmm. and she had a statement that i wrote the exact quote down because i loved it so much uh they've had people just random folks they have this group called humanitarian makers that you could join you could go to their website or follow them on twitter and say hmm 
I see this design and I think I can make it a little bit better and do it and contribute it back. And next time there's a disaster, your design's probably being used somewhere. Um, but she said, let's make testing stuff cool. <laughs> Which, you know awesome. how much I preach about software and hardware testing. Yep, exactly. <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> and not long on the heels of that uh, was another speaker, Robert Ryan Silva, uh, who I actually had the, the pleasure of talking to and is an embedded.fm listener. Uh, he talked about open source hardware for developing countries. Okay. Which and seems so it's pretty important. Very similar. Yeah. Uh, one of the programs was called IU Wash. It was a water system. And instead of somebody having to run around town and read a bunch of analog gauges to try to figure out where leaks were or problems were in the system, they came up with some proof of proof of concept. Uh, networked transducers that would telemeter the data back at a very low cost using all open source hardware. Uh, wow. And another project that they were actually looking for some help on was using digital signal processing to help stop dynamite fishing in the Philippines. <laughs> okay. Yeah, this is great. That seems right up your alley too. Yeah. Uh, now, one that I know you'll be excited about, and I'm just going to say the title and let you go. <laughs> Rianne Trujillo had a talk called Open Hardware Belongs in Your Museum. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's pretty sweet, actually. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that um, I should just wake up my kid so he can come down and talk about how much he would enjoy that. Because yeah. the one time that we had this dinosaur exhibit came through, and I mean, you know, he doesn't, we go so much to the dinosaur museum, he doesn't even want to go through anymore, because <laughs> he knows them all. Uh, <laughs> they had these dinosaur video games. It was the coolest thing. And I know, like, if I could have, you know, taken that home, he would have been super excited about it. Yeah, and actually, so one of the things that she talked about was, you know, museum exhibits have to be very... Uh, robust is probably the best way to say it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they have to survive 500 third grade classes banging on them. Yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and she said often when museums pay for an installation, it's a custom one-off thing. So they actually mm -hmm. would find somebody that does sort of what I do. Right. And say, we want to build this thing. Okay. We build one of them. And then when it breaks, they end up flying you out to look at it. And the solution is generally at one end of the spectrum or the other, you either plug it in or it has been thoroughly trashed. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, but what if the design was open? You know, there's a forum where people can talk about it and help improve it, continually improve it. And like you said, maybe even take it home. Yeah. So they've been using things like Arduinos, Raspberry Pis. Uh, one of the, Examples they had was a Los Alamos uh, museum where you would get an RFID card when you entered that was like a secret pass, they would call it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you could walk around and scan that RFID card to play different features or take 360 degree video tours of buildings that require security clearance to go to in real life. Oh, that's awesome. They've also talked about some exhibits at Acadia National Park that they've done. Really? Yeah. Okay, this is super cool because, man, most national park visitor centers, I'm sorry, as much as I love them, they're very dated. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's specimens and 
mm-hmm. old painted boxes and yes yeah basically yeah. that's it so did they show what they did what what did they do uh, there wasn't a lot of detail it was no, something okay. with like a touchscreen interface but couldn't really tell a lot about it these were very short talks uh slightly longer than agu but not much okay gotcha. yeah so open source hardware in national parks that sounds like a win to me uh absolutely that sounds super great and especially when you you could even have that hey kids you're interested in this you can build it yourself or see how it's built down to every gory detail right here that would be a really cool thing to take home with you you know from those experiences yes yeah i'm really getting into lately you know just because there is so much information presenting stuff in a way that you can be like here's this thing that was cool move on or here's this thing now you can really get into it if you want to you know what i mean i think we right we have enough stuff available to us that that should be a mode of consuming things now i believe consuming knowledge now i believe oh yeah so. i mean it takes time to process it and figure out what you're interested in and how it's related to other things that you're interested in mm-hmm. so right, right. yeah I mean, this is really cool I I like this a lot. And I should also mention, all of these talks are going to be online. Of course. <laughs> it's open, right? Uh, exactly. <laughs> I don't think that they are up yet. They're not. They're, I actually got on here to see if they were, but they are not. If they're up before the show airs, I will link them in. Otherwise, you can open Hardware Summit 2017, and I'm sure you can find them. Yeah, yeah, and you could find all the people in here too. I will say that one of these sponsors are right underneath Embedded FM here is a Bald Engineer, and I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> and also the team for this open source hardware, um, this Oshawa.org, it's nearly all women. It's, it is. Yeah, I was very surprised to see that and very happy about that as well. This is a wonderfully diverse and inclusive conference. I, I was going to ask you that because it looks like it from their, um, you know, just from their sort of executive team here. It's it's sort of like SciPy in that it's one of those conferences where you don't go and you're constantly stressed and constantly competing with people, uh, maybe like an AGU. It's right. very relaxing conference i got to sit down and have a chat with the ceo of a company that i use all the time oh, that's awesome <laughs> uh, for lunch that's cool and that's cool. i mean there was some shop talk and some not shop talk of oh you know you're moving to this area soon oh that's a nice area and uh, just very genuinely kind people and nobody was saying well, this isn't published yet, or well, this isn't yes. this isn't public knowledge, but exactly, exactly, which is you know the I would say it's how science used to be done, but that's absolutely not true. It's how science should be done, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I also appreciate that they have um, a tiered level of going to this conference because as a student, that was always a big deal, right? And so they have a hardship level of ticket. They that's very discounted and it says for students and starving hackers <laughs> yes and i thought that was great <laughs> i mean if if there's everyone near you go uh i never had you know work or anybody pay my way 
mm-hmm. to any of them, but it's very worth the money. That's cool. How big is this? Uh, so this year there were 260 people, I believe. That's pretty good size. And this is a mid-sized one, I would say. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, so it varies up and down some. Next year it's going to be in New York or Cambridge. Oh. And then the year after that, it will be in Shenzhen, China. Oh, my goodness. And then the year after that, it'll be back in the U.S. Okay. That's really neat. Yeah. So a couple more here. Uh, Shaw Selby, he did this talk called Wild Hardware Adventures with Ecological IoT. <laughs> what is an ecological IoT? I don't even... What's so, <laughs> my lizard has a laptop strapped to it. I don't, I don't know what this is. <laughs> sort of. Um, I do have a lizard that was not. <laughs> right. I don't think she's online right now, but. <laughs> so in his talk, he, he has the coolest job title ever. His job title is Explorer. <laughs> he works for National <laughs> Geographic. Oh, so that's like a legit job title. That's not like me just yes. writing that on a card. <laughs> No, it's not like people, you know, head geek or whatever. No. Right. Uh, (laughs) So he works for National Geo uh, and he has gone to this Okavango Delta in northern Botswana. Okay. Yeah. And the website was conservify.org if if you're interested in this stuff. But uh, there are multiple projects like one called Rainforest Connection where they use... uh, basically cheap cell phones that they put out in the forest and leave the audio running to listen huh. for illegal logging and fishing. That's awesome. Uh, GPS trackers for shark finning. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and this one was about taking a trip through this Delta in canoes and they had scientists with them that were making observations. And he said, you know, and this rang way too true. He said, these observations and these readings that they take would sit on a hard drive for years before they ever saw the light of day. Mm -hmm. They didn't want that to happen. So they put sensors on the canoes. So there were sensors reading, you know, atmospheric measurements, water measurements, all this stuff. Uh, There was an app that the scientists would take photos with and write their field notes in. And the field notes, a 360-degree camera that was on the canoe, and all of the canoe sensors were all GPS time-tagged and live uploaded. I can't even speak right now because I'm on the website, and this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Oh, the animations are amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Like, this is so awesome. Like, what? I mean, what an awesome idea, number one, and... Number two, this is spectacular. And wow. The the philosophy seemed to be, which I appreciate this philosophy very much, of measure it because you can, it will be useful someday. Yeah, that's, that's great. And so they measured everything, including their own heartbeats. Huh. Oh my gosh. And he actually found out, they got a notification that some of their colleagues that were on another little branch uh, that their heartbeats had suddenly skyrocketed. So they called them on the satellite phone, and it turns out their canoe had been flipped by a hippo. No kidding! Oh yeah. my gosh. Oh my gosh. This is like finding out about the earthquakes on Twitter before any of the seismic waves actually get to you. Yeah. And 
so they have this thing called Field Kit that it looks like a uh, semi-modular open source platform to do this on. Mm-hmm. And I think the app is still under development somewhat. Uh, but I would love it <laughs> if you take your notes, you take your photos of your experiment, that and all of your data gets packaged and uploaded automatically to a public repository. How amazing would that be? Yes, this is unbelievable. This is such a great thing. I I mean, I couldn't even think of, you know, 20 things that this would sort of revolutionize in sciences, you know. I, I think back to some of our colleagues and students at the time when we were all students at the time right and you know you do your master's thesis on this one tiny part of this one thunderstorm I we talked to Dr. Eric Bruning about this on the show right I mean this is all how much data is sitting here ready to be analyzed like it's kind of it's super exciting right you can make these correlations that you would have never thought because this amount of data was never available Oh yeah, and like this is <laughs> this is mind blowing to me. I cannot believe you just now are telling me about this. I can't even comprehend this. <laughs> well, and they got a lot of engagement from the general public. Oh, I bet. Uh, following on Twitter, following on other social media, and they he said there was one point where they were kind of down. They had had a couple of really rough field days, <laughs> and everybody's spirits were kind of low, and they got a tweet that was a picture of this delta from space from samantha christofredi on the space station oh. saying keep your heads up oh my gosh wow that's amazing yes. and he said everybody <laughs> perked up after that yeah imagine that <laughs> because somebody on the space station was watching them on twitter and happened to be flying over them and took exactly. a photo exactly unbelievable uh there whoever did the art for the conservify is fantastic as well i just need to say that hopefully that's open source too because i need these people to design something for me i think <laughs> yeah well and so there's a talk i believe it might have been right after that i was sort of drifting in and out of talks and walking around to booths and things um by maria frangos who talked about including designers in open source hardware projects and she said, you know, designers, there's a lot of barriers to entry. Uh, we're not engineers. We use different <laughs> platforms. We don't all have GitHub accounts. Uh, there's a, not a common workflow, but it's very valuable to involve a designer in your project. Yeah. And she then said something that was resoundingly similar to something that we've heard on embedded.fm. Uh, she said, "Design designers start with empathy." <laughs> and if you remember, there's a whole episode about empathy-driven development on Embedded, right? Saying yep. that engineering should start with empathy as well. Mm-hmm. So yep. I thought that was an interesting parallel. That really is, especially it should start with that instead of, you know, just a want to make money. So it's really, right. This is very faith restoring in humanity. And then there's uh, there's a talk about making artistic technology, and there's a lot of components to this talk. Uh, but the one that I thought you would like is they opened up this shop, I believe it was in Germany, uh, called Civil Disobedience Repair. <laughs> and it was a free repair cafe, so somebody would volunteer to sit in there. 
and you could bring in your broken stuff, a stereo, a Keurig, a laptop, whatever, and they would fix it for free with the stipulation that you must sit there with them, watch them, and help them repair it. That's so cool. <laughs> That's so awesome. It's like all these like shared design spaces and things that are becoming so popular you know like you go in to do your own thing but you know you're probably going to wind up helping somebody and that's how it should be that's right super great wow yeah and so to top it all off the uh the badge for this conference was amazing <laughs> uh I have awesome badges from previous times. One of them has an OLED screen that has your name and you can press a button and it shares your contact information with somebody else's badge. I remember when you got that. <laughs> you were pretty <Yeah>. excited. <laughs> so uh, this year's, you had to assemble it there. They had reflow ovens and stencils and everything. Oh my gosh. Um, so you had to put the parts, put the solder paste on and put the parts on and then put it in the reflow oven. And it would blink different patterns and all this. You know, it had lots of LEDs on it. Uh, but it was, so it was the open source gear logo was the shape of the printed circuit board. Okay. But in the center of the gear, there was a press fit bearing. And so you press fit the bearing in and turn the blinking lights on and it is a fidget spinner. Oh my gosh. <laughs> this is great. And also, Osh Stencils put a bunch of, I think it's the 50 most common footprints. They gave you stainless steel stencils for you to use on your own prototypes. And Oh, my gosh. That's hilarious. Yeah. It was and an amazing badge. Awesome. Yeah. That's super great. Somehow, I don't think GSA is going to outdo that. I think I'm going to wear my uh, either my screen badge or my blinking badge to conferences in the future just because it's such a cooler name badge. Yeah, yeah, it really is. That's that's pretty excellent. <laughs> and really, Man. I mean, shouldn't we have badges that you press a button and it sends somebody a link to your poster? Yeah, or badges that when you're bored out of your mind in a talk, you can sit there and spin around. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean, you can play video games on my other one. Oh, my God. Uh <laughs> This is the problem with technology conferences. No one ever pays attention to anything once you get your badge and your program. Right. <laughs> uh, so there was lots of lots of cool stuff there. Uh, they had a panel discussion that was really good. Uh, actually, I believe all Colorado open source hardware companies. Oh, wow. Um, which was fascinating. So Spark Fun Electronics, uh, Great Scott Gadgets, <laughs> ALEF Objects. Great Scott gadgets. That's great. <laughs> yeah, so that's Michael Osman's company, and he actually had a really good kind of quotable snippet of. He said, "I don't do open. I I do open source hardware because it's the right thing to do. It was never <laughs> a question." That's awesome. That is awesome. And I mean, he found out that like there was some conference in uh, I believe it was Germany again that ended up using part of his design in their badge and had like RF spectrum analyzers in their badge. Oh, cool. Yeah. And he so, thought it was so cool. He flew over there. Wow. This is super neat. This actually, I don't know. That's very exciting. Having to actually dig into 
all this stuff. I mean, a little bit. Obviously, I'm paying you to fix most of my things, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a that's very it's very nice when you want to do something and you can do it, right? It's not behind a paywall. It's not proprietary. It's none of that stuff, you know. I had enough of that stuff working in the industry. It gets pretty old. Yeah. So, yeah. That's neat. That is All cool. right. Well, that that's my uh my summary, I think. You know, I said I think this will be a, a relatively short snippet, Shannon, and we're 45 minutes in. I know. <laughs> I just checked that. I just tore myself away from the Conservify website and thought, mm, nope, this isn't a short show. No, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> but I think we should move on to everybody's favorite part of the show. Fun Paper Yay! Friday. Yay! Well, this paper comes to us from listener Steve. And Steve forwarded it and said, this seems right up your alley. And man, <laughs> he nailed it. <laughs> he did. Um, I don't think we've combined it, drones and our predilection for um, infectious diseases yet. Well, even more so, this is drones, infectious disease, geology, yeah. and meteorology. And climate change. Yep, exactly. And climate. Yeah. Good job, Steve. You know us better than we know ourselves. <laughs> it's so true. Uh, so this paper is called High Flying Microbes by Schmall and Ross. And so these microbes take these drones out. No. <laughs> <laughs> right. But <laughs> So as we just said, you know, this looks at something that is too scary for me to even start contemplating. I mean, I am a geologist and I do teach paleoclimate. So, you know, I understand what's happening, but I get really nervous when we start to talk about how climate change is affecting food, basically. And <laughs> that's what a lot of this is, is because they talk about this fungus, this FHB or Fusarium head blight that affects you know, basically the things that feed all of us, barley, oats, other grains and stuff like this. And it's spreading all around the globe because climate is changing. And so they wanted to look at how this fungus spreads. And it was really scary how they did it. So they wanted to look at it. And so they thought they'd use drones and see how far these pathogens can travel. And the answer is terrifying. Yeah. Uh, hundreds of kilometers uh -huh. is the answer. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, up in the atmosphere, right? Uh, so, so that's uh, been your fun paper Friday. Uh, yep. <laughs> Go down to your bunker and don't connect to the internet again. <laughs> yeah. So the, the first experiment they did was they came out with this very specific trace that they knew the genetic makeup of very well. And they said, we're going to put this on a few corn stalks out in the middle of a field. And we're going to track it by putting Petri dishes at fixed intervals out to the edge of the field a kilometer away. <laughs> and so they see them in the kilometer away, and the next step was, well, how long do we keep putting these Petri dishes out? <laughs> exactly. Or we could get a drone and fly it around and do atmospheric sampling. I am convinced that every drone paper is just born of the fact of somebody's like, I want a drone. What kind of research can I do to get one? <laughs> But yeah, so that's what they did is they stuck this drone up there to see if it could basically sniff 
the microbes and figure out using, <laughs> they say, this advanced math that meteorologists already use to figure out how far these things could actually spread. So the Navier-Stokes equation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> but I, this is a place where I would like to see some open hardware because they say they did real-time sensing as they were flying. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, I would love to know how you do that because I have no idea. Uh, yeah. I had envisioned this as this being like a wheel of Petri dishes that you That's rotate exactly. to expose different ones. <laughs> That's exactly. Like the little Amazon drones, instead of holding a package, just holding this big Petri dish. That's exactly yeah. what I thought, too. <laughs> um, yeah, and I wonder it, if... We're I, geologists, not biologists, okay? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, that's not how it works. <laughs> but in my mind, that's exactly how it works. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, I don't know if maybe we had the actual paper that these they have pictures of this somewhere, of their experimental setup and everything. So, there's some pictures. If you Google the paper name, you can right. find their university has a write-up about them being in Scientific American. Oh, okay. There we go. Uh, and you can see a picture of the drone. It's a fixed wing drone, not a quadcopter. You can gotcha. cover a lot more ground that way. Mm-hmm. And, and, but unfortunately, the actual paper itself is behind a paywall. Yeah, yeah. But so we'll give you the we'll give you the lowdown. Um, and this is something we've actually talked about in my Earth Past Climate class because I have a lot of meteorologists in here, and I don't remember talking a lot about this when I was in meteorology. Um, about the role of microbes in the sky too because you have these microbes that are hanging out i mean this a fungi is what this one we were talking about that's affecting these crops is but they do all kinds of things to the physics of precipitation as well so microbes in the sky can affect you know the freezing point of water which can affect how you get precipitation and that's something I don't remember talking a lot about, but this is kind of a new area, I think, because all the meteorologists knew about this and how the large amount of microbes actually affects the weather. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I took cloud physics, just saying like, well, there's this thing that's uh, it's a condensation nuclei. It can be really anything. Right. The radius matters. It goes into this formula and these microphysics work on it and we get a raindrop. Right. Yeah, exactly. I remember that too. But to think that in the middle of all those raindrops or snowflakes you're sitting there catching on your tongue or a bunch of microbes. It's going to make you think twice about going out there and playing in the rain. Yeah. Well, and they, <laughs> they even talk about how many microbes, viruses, all this other stuff is in pretty much every breath and bite of food mm. that we have. So I'm going to stick to beer. I know what microbes are in there. <laughs> exactly. Mm. And, uh, you know, I didn't and they're, know. And they're all drunk, so it doesn't matter. So, yeah, this FHB, which is often called scab in the agricultural industry, so it bleaches the head of these grains, and it actually fills them with this mycotoxin. And when you eat it, it can make people and animals sick, like nauseous, and that actually caused a large problem with pigs getting sick and then not wanting to eat. And just really messing with the food chain. I believe it was in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's awful. Yeah, so this is an important thing to be looking at. And turns out that other strains of different plant viruses, so different kinds of rust, they called it, mm-hmm. have actually crossed 
oceans. Oceans, yeah. <laughs> so soybean rust came to the U.S. from South America thanks to Hurricane Ivan in 2004. That's unbelievable. And they, it wasn't here before that. And then a hurricane, because of warming climate, ended up carrying it here. Yep. And they say because water covers about 70% of the planet... We have no doubt that what we f- we find will reveal fascinating new ways that microbes travel the globe. <laughs> yeah, because we n- know not a lot about the physics of how surface mixing works, waves crashing, aerosolizing things. Right, even rain Capturing things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, even how they splash and how that's going to wind up spreading things as well. And you might think, well, these microbes, they get lofted high in the air and then they get you know, sterilized by UV. That's a nice thought, but <laughs> it turns out they attach themselves to dust particles to shade themselves. Yeah, yeah, they're smarter than that. Yep. <laughs> oh, oh, creepy. Yeah, so this is um, depressing research, but also really interesting too, right? It is, and it's something that is a nice collaboration between these two authors one of them more into the modeling one of them into the microbes yeah Uh, and i think it's really got some legs in terms of coming up with nice new sampling methodologies and monitoring the spread of these things on a seasonal basis so farmers know how to preventatively treat their crops Mm -hmm. yep exactly that real-time sampling seems like that would save farmers a lot of money too yeah And it's not uncommon for farmers to use drones now to do things like find under-irrigated spots or over-irrigated spots on their land. Right, exactly. So that was was super interesting, Steve. Thank you for that contribution. And like I said, keep them coming. You always send great stuff to us. Absolutely. And you can send your favorite fun paper into us. Any comments that you have or microbial Petri dish analysis... (laughs) of your flower or grain of choice shannon how can they get a hold of us uh send those to john at (laughs) send those to us at show at don'tpanicgeocast.com tweet us pictures of your petri dish attached to your drone Uh, we are at don'tpanicgeo john is at geo underscore lehman i'm at shannon doolin or you can see pictures of john's mill and other fun things we talk about on our slack channel it's on the software underground don't panic channel and until next week remember don't panic it's not an exact science Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.